1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network. I am Ian Hathaway, your host for the day. And so I am at my very first experience recording one of these interviews, and uh, as you might notice, I'm quite excited. And I'm even more excited because our guest today is someone whose work has been really very influential for my own work throughout graduate school and even beyond. This guest is Natalie Rothman, Associate Professor at the University of Toronto, uh, who specializes in uh, the history of the early modern Mediterranean, most notably the history of cultural mediation, genealogies of Orientalism, and the relationship between translation and empire. So, Professor Rothman, welcome to the New Books Network. How are you doing today?
0: I am very well. Thank you, Ian, for the opportunity to speak to you today. We're very excited about it.
1: Likewise. I'm very glad you, uh, you have the time to do this. So, Professor Rothman is the author of a first important book, Brokering Empire, Trans-Imperial Subjects Between Venice and Istanbul, from 2011. And I will say that transimperial subjects, the term, has become a rather catchphrase, at least among my group of fellow researchers at the Archive in Venice. So, definitely very influential for us. And since this publication, Professor Rothman has continued to work on the history of Mediterranean cultural and diplomatic mediators. And she is here today to talk with us about her new book, The Dragoman Renaissance Diplomatic Interpreters and the Routes of Orientalism, which is published by Colonel University Press, 2021. And very briefly, because we'll have plenty of time to talk about the book, uh, so this work traces how between the 16th and 17th century, Um, 18th century, really, though I would say that the 17th is sort of the barest center of the book, which is a very interesting choice, too, that maybe will come up. Istanbul based diplomatic translators, interpreters known as the dragomans, systematically engaged Ottoman elites in the study of the Ottoman Empire and also about how these engagements eventually coalesced into the discipline of Orientalism. So I found this book really fascinating. And as I said, I'm very excited to talk about it with you today. And as is typical on this channel, could I ask you to tell us something about the genesis of this book? Where does the inspiration come from? What led you to write this text?
0: Certainly, Um, I guess the the short answer is that it started as two dissertation chapters um, that um, I wrote back in um, around 2004-2005 And that as I was working on transforming that dissertation into a monograph, it became very clear to me that these two chapters first needed a lot more space to develop properly, but also that I needed more tools. I needed greater grounding in Ottoman historiography, something that I hadn't received in graduate school. Um, I was trained as a straight up Venetianist slash Europeanist, and that became a, a real gap in, in my training, but also the history of early Orientalism, early Oriental studies in Europe. I also felt that I needed to spend more time thinking about the relationship between the methods of translation studies and linguistic anthropology and how to bring them together. So that is kind of why I felt this these two chapters couldn't be included in, in brokering empire and truly needed more time to grow and, and develop.
1: Right. Well, so this tells us something about the very long life of dissertations too, which yes, is <laughs> uh, a good thing to keep in mind. Yeah. Um, and uh, very good. So you've already actually started to answer my second question, which is if you could very briefly situate this book um, within the various literature um, strains that it is in conversation with or perhaps that it pushes back against, mm-hmm. uh, just so the listeners can sort of orient themselves?
0: Certainly. So there is, as you noted, there are many different bodies of literature that uh, the book engages with, um, whether critically or or uh, kind of as an effort to, to broaden the conversation. um I guess the three most obvious ones, one would be the literature on early modern diplomacy, where for the past couple of decades, um, there has been a concerted effort to address the field's invisible technicians, and here I'm deliberately mixing metaphors. This is invisible technicians, of course, a term from the history of science, Stephen Shapin's very evocative term. Um, Those practitioners with, you know, a lot of nuanced know-how who make things work, but that Perhaps don't get all the glory. So, in the history of science, this would be lab technicians. um, But in diplomacy, we might think of secretaries, scribes, postal workers, and certainly diplomatic translators and interpreters. So, that is one field that I felt I had um, a lot to say to that field in terms of who are the protagonists of our narratives about diplomacy, who are those whose know how and perspectives and worlds, kind of worldviews are reflected in in the historiography the second one is much more broadly the, the this very broad amorphous category of intermediaries or the history of of mediation which at least when i started thinking seriously about transforming this into a monographic project it seemed to me we're still very much in the mode of celebrating intermediaries as kind of cultural heroes who bring hybridity, mixing, multiculturalism, build bridges between separate units. And both for kind of biographical reasons and and historiographical reasons, I I really wanted to push back against this notion. And for my previous work on transimperial subjects, I was very keenly aware of how those who are self-proclaimed intermediaries or invested in the work of mediation often are rather the ones who establish boundaries rather than those who bring bridge across separate units, meaning these are not neutral agents who bring things together that were previously entirely separate, but rather they play a really important epistemological role in uh, establishing where the boundary lies between categories that often for other um, contemporaries and even uh, later, observers may, may seem like there is actually uh, not that clear cut of a boundary. And certainly in the context of Venetian-Ottoman interactions, anyone who knows something about the geography of these polities and about the nature of early modern sovereignty would know that the borderlands were a vast swathe of land and maritime engagements where it was not at all evident who's Venetian and who's Ottoman. Uh, and how meaningful these categories are, how are they deployed. And so those who proclaim to be intermediaries between them actually play a very active role in saying, this is what a Venetian looks like, this is what an Ottoman looks like, this is what the languages are between which we are going to now mediate and establish that there is a clear protocol for how they engage with one another. And finally, Orientalism, and here we could spend many hours talking about the history of of the concept of Orientalism, Said's very, very foundational contribution to, I think, any engagement with the humanities and social science, interpretive social sciences, at least, um, since uh, the book came out in 78. And uh, for me, what was important in thinking about Orientalism is not to take uh, Said to task for only starting with Napoleon and, and the 19th century. To me, that's, it's already been done, it's already been pointed out that there is a, a much longer genealogy to Orientalism, both as a, the, the kind of the categorical distinction between East and West, but certainly in terms of a disciplinary formation, which I think is a more interesting question. How does the discipline of Orientalism emerge? Where are its um, important loci? And who are the people involved in its establishment? I, I knew from my from my broader training as an early modernist that certainly one cannot think of Orientalism mean, as only starting in the 19th century. Um, but the, for me, the more interesting question was who are the protagonists of this field? Who are the people who actually build the body of knowledge and the methodologies and the epistemologies that allow one to even think along the terms of East versus West? And that's where my earlier work on other kinds of transimperial subjects made me very aware that there is a process afoot in the 17th century that redraws certain boundaries, that um, weaponizes in some sense um, these categories. It uses very strategically um, terms like Easterner and Westerner, and that perhaps surprisingly, perhaps not so much, some of the main protagonists invested in these categories are not state officials in Venice necessarily, to use a very myopic view of Venetian studies, but the supplicants who are coming to Venice from territories territories further east, whether it's in Ottoman Bosnia or um, Armenians coming from the Safavid Ottoman borderlands, et cetera, et cetera. And that kind of raises the question, okay, so where does Orientalism come from? What are its diverse kind of... Uh, genealogies and, and sites of emergence, and Istanbul itself, and this is where I started saying that I needed more grounding in Ottoman history because the, and historiography, because the more I explored this question, the more I realized that one cannot think of the genealogies of Orientalism in the early modern period by only looking at how this field articulates in Europe, that there is a very important role played by Ottoman elites, by the Ottoman court, and by those intermediaries who are situated in Istanbul, namely the Dragomans, in mediating the ideas of Ottoman elites about the Ottoman project, about its own assumptions about um, culture, to use a a very nebulous term for a second, we can come back to that, but but the Ottoman elite's own kind of synthetic project in the 16th century to establish and kind of rebrand Ottoman elite culture in relation to other Islamic polities, in relation to other regional languages, in relation to uh, a very capacious world history. Um, And that that, that this synthetic project really lies at the heart of how Europeans come to learn about Islam, about uh, Islamic languages, about the history of what today we call the Middle East. And so we cannot understand how this discipline emerges in Europe unless we think um, very capaciously about how it draws on methodologies and epistemologies that emerge elsewhere. And and that's where the the question of the Dragomans became very interesting to me, not just as a kind of social phenomenon, oh, this is a really interesting group that no one seems to have written very much about, which was kind of the initial motivation, but rather an understanding this is not just an interesting group that no one has written about very much, but this is a, a group that plays a really fundamental role in the emergence of this discipline that that has ongoing implications to this day on how we study the Middle East, how we think about the Middle East, how various kinds of political projects are built on the foundation established by, by these intermediaries. So kind of in a nutshell, that's where where the project emerged from and why it became, to for me, not just a project of social history, but very much a project of intellectual history as well.
1: Right. And it definitely manages to blend together these three different strains. Uh, I find it fascinating that in some ways you've done, um, you followed sort of a, uh, today I would say, established idea of what new diplomatic uh, studies which is to look at the intermediaries look at the people the secretaries etc but you've selected a specific folk type of intermediary in a specific place Istanbul capital of you know Eurasian diplomacy um, that really allows you to uh, draw together all these uh, strands uh, in one coherent project. But uh, but before we get to the very far-reaching implications of your study um, and of the conclusions that you present, uh, let's go back to these people. Um, your first several chapters really look at, uh, even from a prosopographic perspective, at uh, uh, several different uh, dragomans who operate uh, dragoman families who operate out of Istanbul throughout our time period. Could you tell us something more about them? Who were they? Where did they come from? How were they trained? etc.
0: Sure. So Dragomans, in the sense that they use narrowly in the book in terms of my own archival contribution, are diplomatic employees of foreign consulates and embassies in early modern Istanbul. But we should start by clarifying that the term is in circulation um, for several centuries prior to that point. It does not start with the establishment of foreign, primarily European diplomatic um, representative, uh, residential diplomatic households in Istanbul in the late 16th century, but rather we find it in Byzantine times, in Mamluk times. Um, They're very much part of the Mediterranean medieval world as well. Um, In the narrow sense that I use the term in the book, they come to play a very important ceremonial function uh, in mediating relationships between foreign embassies and the Ottoman Divan, the chancery, and the operations of the Ottoman court. They're the ones who um, speak for foreign representatives in court ceremonials, so when you have um, the... The appointment of a new ambassador or a new uh, resident consul. They are the ones who appear in court in their livery and, and participate in the ceremonial. They participate in processions and other kind of rituals of courtly life. They also engage in the day-to-day work of translating diplomatic correspondence and official state records um, between the Ottoman language, which is the official language of the court, and the various languages used by foreign foreign embassies at the time period, primarily Italian initially and later on French, um, Dutch, English, et cetera, et cetera. The dragomans that I study are interesting because they are kind of an amalgam of three different sources of recruitment. You have those dragomans that are um, descendants of primarily Italian speaking Genoese and Venetian settlers at the time of the Fourth Crusade. So in the wake of uh, the sack of uh, Byzantium and the establishment of Latin kingdoms throughout the eastern Mediterranean, um, you have permanent settlements of Genoese and Venetian merchants in uh, Byzantium, which later on becomes Constantinople or Istanbul. And um, so their descendants who are Catholic, um, but in many ways Speak Greek at home and become very much part of the Christian uh, milieu of that capital city. There are one source of recruitment for the Venetian embassy in particular, which is the focus of these of these chapters. There are two other very important sources of recruitment, however. Um, one is Venetian citizens, so um, young people who are born to a particular class of Um, Venetians in the city of Venice who are not part of the ruling patrician elite, but kind of a a substratum of, um, we might gloss in a somewhat simplistic way as civil servants, so people who enjoy uh, some power and and positions of appointments in the lower ranks of of the Venetian government, but they're not members of the Senate, they're not members of the ruling elite of the city. Their sons are often trained as scribes and notaries, um, and those are the kinds of professional trajectories that lead them to be sent to Istanbul to be trained to become dragomans for the Venetian bylet, the term that I will keep using, which means basically the the permanent residency in, in Istanbul, so not the ambassador that comes in only for ceremonial functions, but rather the day-to-day uh, of side of uh, consular service, um, commercial arbitration, etc. And finally, a third source of recruitment, which in a in, in way is the linchpin of the whole package, are what we might call colonial elites, Venetian colonial elites. So people who are um, either have some claim to aristocratic title or simply have some accumulated wealth in the large swath of land between the city of Venice and the Ottoman territories in Bosnia, so what today we might call Croatia, Dalmatia, the Aegean islands, um, this kind of mostly maritime world that connected these two polities, And those elites, for a variety of reasons that I go into in the book, find it very appealing to send their sons to Istanbul to work to train and work as dragomans in the Venetian in the Venetian pilot what's interesting about these three sources of recruitment so the Ottoman Catholics of Istanbul the Venetian citizen class and the Venetian colonial elites of the Adriatic and Aegean is that by the 17th century when i kind of the period that i call the dragoman renaissance they are deeply deeply intermarried so much so that we can actually think of the Dragomans, not just as a professional group, but rather as a caste. Um, There is a tremendous level of um, intermarriage among Venetian Dragoman families coming from these three different sources of recruitment, but also between Venetian and other Dragomans, so the the Dragomans of the French Embassy, of the English Embassy, um, of the Polish Embassy, the Raguzins. Uh, you begin to see that They might have different sons working for different embassies, or the father works for the Habsburg, and then the children work for others. Um, Which makes it even more interesting to think about kinship and to think about how these different sources of recruitment produce a different kind of presence in Istanbul that can't be easily categorized, either juridically or even epistemologically for us, as clearly Ottoman or clearly not Ottoman. And this murkiness plays a really important role in how these individuals and their families understand themselves, understand their position in the city. It means that they have access to a variety of uh, jurisdictional fora. Um, They can take their cases to a sharia court if they want to, but they can also take it to a consular court. They can take it to the Venetians or they can take it to the French. And this nimbleness, this... um, flexibility of who they can, uh, of kind of legal recourse, which we know typifies Ottoman urban society more generally, but is even more acute in their case, I think is one of the keys to understanding how they position themselves so effectively as the quintessential intermediaries, as those who can claim to speak on behalf of foreign representatives, but also really have a very deep profound understanding of how Ottoman courtly society works and are very well integrated into that society there are not outsiders to this society looking in but rather they really have one foot in the society
1: right and uh, um, this this uh, being able to sort of um, operate and uh, and move through uh Istanbul society is one of the reasons why they're also so effective at uh, and sought after at doing their jobs. Um, so I would like to focus on on one other thing that you mentioned, which um, you discuss in your second chapter, uh, which is about kinship networks. Uh, so first of all, uh, I really appreciated the way you reconstructed um, relationships between dragoman households even and how you think of them as you know, subordinate elite households, which is something that in some ways uh, should have been obvious to me, for example, who am a half Venetianist, half Ottomanist sort of. But in reality, because the Dragomans, at least in the sources I'm familiar with, cast themselves as so Poor and so unfortunate all the mm. time. This is the rhetoric of the petitions. I think you you mentioned this, but it's it's um, we find them in this this kind of descriptions of themselves. Um, we really miss the fact that they are elite uh, households to some effect, and they follow ways of building kinship networks that are, in some ways, uh, if my memory of, for example, kinship networks in Renaissance Florence suffice, in some ways typical. Um, for example, um, uh, godparenting, but in some ways uh, unique. And I was very much struck by the role that enslaved persons have mm-hmm. in helping these dragoman networks develop themselves. So I was wondering if you could say briefly something more about that.
0: Certainly. And that was kind of a late revelation for me because I too, for a long time, bought into this narrative that comes across very powerfully in Dragoman's petitions about their poverty, about their objection, about their vulnerability legally to the whims of Ottoman uh, government officials. And then I was actually in Provo, Utah, um, on my way to give a talk at Brigham Young University, and I thought I would pop my head into uh, the library of uh, the Latter-day Saints to look at some records of the parish um, church of Galata where these Dragoman's families got their baptisms and marriages and um, um, death certificates. Um, most of these records are gone, they, they perished in a fire, but thankfully some of these have been um, microfilmed by the, the, the church prior to that and are available for consultation. And I was rather stunned by the number of enslaved people in Dragomans households. Again and again, you see the names of these Dragomans and even their very young children as sponsoring enslaved people at baptism or to marriage. Um, and it becomes very clear that some of these Dragoman households had very many enslaved women and children in within within these households, which really for me beg the question, what were they doing there? And of course, if you know something about elite um, Ottoman urban households, as well as Venetian elite households of the time, domestic slavery was a staple of these households, something that was completely normalized and naturalized, but also that had very specific um, gendered and racialized aspects to it with a preference uh, for uh, women, uh, particularly fair-skinned women from the Black Sea region, uh, often glossed as Circassian and Georgian in the records, and since those markers were very much part of the recording of these of these enslaved people in in the parish records, it really raised for me the question of the effort that these dragomans are making. Um, To maybe emulate is not the right word here, but are just inhabiting uh, the same kind of elite status of their um, non Catholic um, fellow Istanbulites, and in many ways are very much integrated into the logics of elite consumption of the city. This also comes across not just from these scattered parish records, but also from the few eyewitness accounts we have of wedding ceremonies involving the daughters of dragomans, where it becomes very clear that the wealth and power on display in these moments of bringing two households together is very much intended to underscore the extent to which these are very much elite families uh, that are very attuned to the consumption patterns of the court that know how to dress well how to eat well how to have the right kind of musicians playing at the at the ceremony etc etc so all of these moments of, of kind of being, having the the archives kind of offer a different glimpse of, of what the lives of these dragoman families might have looked like were very transformative for my thinking about how we can situate them within the literature on early modern households and also take stock of the fact that, yes, in many ways they are typical, but they're not simply typical of what a Venetian elite household would look like. And they're not simply typical of what an Ottoman elite household looks like, but in many ways they really bring these two together and are very adept at weaving together these, patterns of elite consumption, elite habitus, um, how to leverage um, wealth, whether it's monetary or cultural capital, what we might call today, to achieve certain kind of political ends and professional advancement. Um, So all of these aspects kind of came together for me in in insisting that one cannot study these dragomans simply as individuals. but that attention to kinship and households and how uh, women play a really fundamental role in connecting um, these households, not just through marriage, but also through their own know-how, whether it is in terms of elite consumption or use of the courts. We have women litigants, um, dragomans' wives and daughters regularly writing petitions, taking either the bailout to court or, or going to the Ottoman courts to secure dowries, to secure inheritance, to secure real estate um, property that was theirs, um, all of these moments were very kind of central to, to my thinking about what these dragomans are and how we can position them in relationship to these two imperial formations.
1: Right and certainly very, very helpful for me to really think about these uh, these families and their roles and how you how they were able to, as you mentioned, inhabit uh, and not just inhabit but make their own different uh, or sometimes similar patterns of uh, of uh, household making and consumption, etc, et etc. Cetera, et cetera. So now we have a bit of a sense of who these people that you have been studying are. Um, and in the second part, which is also I would say chapters four through um, through eight the the chapters in which you really start to explore uh the working of these uh, dragomanza, what they wrote for themselves, their relazioni for example, um, their translations etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, could you tell us more about the kinds of work that these uh, people performed what did they what did they write what did they translate
0: mm-hmm. Certainly, and it's a, it's a very large and deep um, archive, which when I started the project, I wasn't necessarily aware of. So I, I was well aware of the role in translating Ottoman government records into Italian, because that's preserved as part of the archives of the Venetian Violet that is now housed in Venice, but was a, kind of a, a working chancery archive for the duration of Venetian representation in Istanbul, which goes all the way to 1797, to the fall of the, the Venetian Republic. I was aware of these documents, which I had come across I, you know, at least um, six, seven years ago, and, and was aware of, kind of the continuity of, of their practice of, of creating these uh, facing translations of, of copies of Ottoman records in, in a series called uh, Turkish charters, Carte Turke. I was less aware of their production of a whole uh, range of other kinds of documents. So you mentioned the Relazioni, these um, reports, which are either reports for mission or kind of self-narratives of various kinds. And we actually have a few examples of these Uh, produced by dragomans who were sent on missions either to North Africa or to the Safavid uh, court in Iran, um, and, and who wrote, and some of these were actually printed and circulated, whether in print or in manuscript, very widely in the 16th and 17th centuries. I later on became aware also of a series of portraits of dragomans and their immediate kin, which are currently housed in two collections, one in present-day Croatia and one in present-day Slovenia in um, towns that were um, where, where some of these dragoman families hailed from. And I was very interested in how dragomans are represented in this kind of serial portraiture. So chapter five um, looks closely at those examples. I came across this so called miniature album or um, narrative that many, many historians of Venetian Ottoman relations had looked at previously, um, um, today, um, part of the Emanuele Cicogna um, legacy in the Museo Correr in, in Venice, uh, but that had been used primarily as kind of. Cool illustrations to talk about this or that aspect of Venetian Ottoman diplomacy but that very few people had paid attention to as an artifact that had been curated and who was involved in its production and I made the argument first in an article and then in a revised fashion in the book about the very important role that Dragomans and Dragomans' own perspective on Venetian-Ottoman relations serve in understanding this this. Uh, important codex and and how it came into being. I I was very fortunate to be contacted by the head of the oriental section of the library of the Hermitage Museum in St. Petersburg um, a few years back who told me about the discovery of a codex in their collections that um, came as part of the looted manuscripts from Berlin at the end of World War II that turns out to have been what was considered for a very long time to have been lost and destroyed Teschner album. So uh, Franz Teschner was a a, a turn of the 20th century uh, German Orientalist, a very influential one, who published, I believe in in 1923 or 24, a black and white facsimile of images that scholars for a long time conjectured was connected to the to the one in Venice, given the, the style of the of the images, but no one uh, had been able to study beyond that black and white facsimile, and so I was thankfully able to travel to Saint Petersburg, look at the this codex, and also get um, high-resolution digital images that are now featured um, on the project platform in open access, and those images really change in some ways the narrative of the, the, the other Codex, the Venetian Codex that had been much better studied and allowed me to, again, think about the kinds of narratives that this Codex tells about Venetian-Ottoman relations and how it aims to prepare future Venetian representatives to appreciate the fundamental role of Dragomans in, in mediating uh, those relationships. And finally, in the latter chapters of the book, I also look at Dragoman's very sizable contribution, first as translators of Ottoman historical chronicles and other genres, although the historical chronicle definitely looms very large in this corpus. And to think about what kind of tastes, what kind of canonical genres are being mediated to uh, readers in Italian and other Latin languages uh, who did not have access to Ottoman literature directly and what kind of perception of Ottoman literature one might get from reading uh, that corpus and being limited by the kinds of genres that make it into Dragomans' translations. And finally, and I think this is where things are particularly significant in terms of the history of Orientalism, uh, Dragomans, as a producers of what I call metalinguistic texts, so things like dictionaries, um, vocabularies, phrase books, and especially grammars, where dragomans I show um, through some kind of quantitative analysis of the corpus play a really outsized role in, as, as the authors of these kinds of texts, particularly grammars, some of the most influential grammars of Ottoman Turkish to circulate in Europe well into the 19th century were authored by, by dragomans. Um, and even texts that are written by non-dragomans I show are very indebted to the perspectives that dragomans bring to the study of the Ottoman language. And when I say that the perspective that Dragomans bring, it's actually, as I argue, not so much Dragomans' perspective, but rather the perspective of Ottoman courtly elites that Dragomans kind of absorb as they are trained in uh, the study of the Ottoman language in their courtly setting of diplomatic chanceries and come to understand what the nature of the Ottoman language very much through that lens of how it is used by Ottoman courtly elites, their own perception of what this language is and isn't, how it relates to Arabic and Persian, how it itself is very synthetic uh, using lexicon and grammatical structures from Arabic and Persian. So there is a, a certain history to what specific kind of Ottoman language variety makes it to Europe. And I argue that Dragomans play a pivotal role in mediating that particular variety. And a lot of the ideological baggage, if you will, that comes with it from the Ottoman court in terms of what they think is pure, what they think is noteworthy, what they think is correct or incorrect in terms of what kinds of linguistic variants are meaningful and should be studied. And even something as fundamental as if anyone who's trained today in the Middle East Studies department would know that The study of Turkish is often understood to be foundational to the discipline, but there is also this trifecta of Turkish, Arabic, and Persian. Um, And if you look at the number of Turkish speakers in the world today, you might wonder why is this understood as such an important language to learn? Why aren't there other Islamic languages or Middle Eastern languages that are spoken by more people and that have sizable bodies of literature but are not? part of the canonical understanding of what Middle East studies is about, that understanding of Turkish and its foundational role in the discipline is very much because of its genealogy coming from Istanbul and very much refracting Ottoman elite's own understanding of their importance, the importance of the Ottoman language for courtly life, the importance of Ottoman history, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Right. And in some ways, um, sort of to to... Repeat in some ways what you just said. Uh, this idea that the dragomans, through their own experience, particularly as members of the diplomatic corps, um, are on the one hand really solidifying Ottoman, uh, Ottoman Turkish or Turkish as an administrative language, if you will, the la- language of the state, and it exists in a world in which there are other two fundamental languages, Persian and Arabic. Uh, if we want the language of religion and the language of high culture of poetry and that that this understanding is something that the dragomans channel or refract in your own terminology from the istanbulite milieu of which they are part mm-hmm. to european uh Diplomats who are who work with them, or people who are just interested for a variety of reasons, um, want to know things about the Ottomans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really fascinating. And before we sort of look into the um, uh, implications of this for Orientalism, which uh, sort of are already um, we've already started to dive into, I was wondering if you could uh, you could unpack this. Uh, sentence for us that you write. And you tell us that, uh, this is from chapter 8, translating the Ottomans, you tell us that the monolingual and methodological nationalist fallacies underguarding such arguments are bellied by Dragomans' life worlds. And what you are sort of pushing back against here are certain uh, concepts of foreignization and domestication drawn from translation studies. Uh, as mentioned, could you, could you unpack this, uh, this uh, for us a little bit?
0: I can certainly try. Um, so one of the, and here I might be, I might not be doing full justice to the richness of translation studies paradigms, um, where the idea of foreignization and domestication has already been critiqued extensively. But basically, the idea there is that translators make choices. Um, as they translate a text from language A to language B, they're understood generally to be fully uh, members of community language community B, but perhaps not language community A, that we know exactly where the boundary lies between language A and language B, community A, community B, that language A equates community A, language B equates community B, and that as Dragomans are making these choices about how to translate certain terms, they can either choose to quietly domesticate them. So to give a very simple example, if uh, the text in Ottoman says "vizier," to say in Italian ministro, uh, in English minister, uh, so that it, the, it kind of reads to um, a, an Italian reader as um, it, doesn't, it doesn't alert them to any um, kind of sense of the foreign. Or they can uh, use foreignization, um, use the term uh, vizier, um, and uh, thereby um, enhance um, enhance the sense of of the foreign. And there have been debates back and forth among translation studies scholars about what is this uh, use of the foreign, what does it do to the text, what does it do to the experience of cultural similarity or difference, and what are the the affordances of these choices. What I point out in my study are several things. First of all, that the use of these terms is not just about the experience of the readers, but very much about the self-positioning of the dragoman or the translator, him or herself. In in my case, it's exclusively men, but certainly um, that is not inherently so in the case of translation, and that, again, by itself is not an innovation. A lot of scholars in translation studies have already pointed out to the situatedness of the translator and about how they um, make themselves either visible or invisible in the text they produce. But I also point out that it's not so much just about the self-positioning of the translator, but about their own ideological assumptions about languages, about where the boundary lies, about who the readers are, about what are kind of the strategic um, end goals of this translation. And so if we take go back to the question of uh, vizier versus ministro and take a more complicated example of a term that may not have been a household name in early modern Italian-speaking communities, any term that would have been familiar, for example, for a diplomat working in Istanbul and familiar with the workings of the Ottoman government, but not familiar to readers elsewhere in the world of Italian letters, those kinds of choices now begin to also operate in terms of projecting who your ideal reader is, what is the community of ideal readers, who is included and who is excluded by these uh, word choices. And more fundamentally, it really raises the question of why do we assume that all readers are monolingual who only have access to the text in one language or in another, or that uh, vizir, viziro, is not a term in Italian by the late 17th century. I think we now have the corpora to make this an empirical question and perhaps also show that it's a very pervasive term that most readers of Italian in the late 17th century would have understood perfectly well what vizero mean and wouldn't even perhaps even registered it as, as foreign necessarily. Um, perhaps this, this is not the best of examples, but I think it kind of gets across the complexity of making claims about the ethics of translation, translation and this framework of foreignization and domestication as always assuming a one-on-one ethical relationship between word choices and the readers. Um, and, and in the case of, of dragomans, they were operating as multilinguals in multilingual environments, and that multilingualism was completely normalized and completely the default of pretty much everyone in their knowledge. So it wasn't an unusual aspect of their presence in Istanbul, but rather that's exactly what made them such perfect Istanbulite courtiers. The Istanbulite court itself is profoundly multilingual, both in terms of the languages spoken by individuals and the very many different provenances of the people who make up the court. So we cannot think of Ottoman and the Ottoman language as the only language that is spoken at court or the only language that's understood by members of the court. Um, and we also cannot assume that everyone outside the court was unaware of of, of these phenomena and uh, the basics of the Ottoman language.
1: Right. And I think this is uh, something that's uh, important to keep in mind for not just Istanbul, but perhaps many other places in the early modern world in general, that many people in many different positions in society were de facto multilingual for... Any number of reasons, and, and it's true
0: of uh, our uh, own modern world. I think it's only in Anglophone North America that this is regularly forgotten and erased for very specific ideological reasons. But the vast majority of the world population today is multilingual too. It's a completely I think normal that's, thing. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's a that's a really good uh, really good point. I myself grew up bilingual, and uh, and uh, um, I hear you. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, I think what I would like to do now is focus on the the end of your book, the last few um, uh, chapters, or rather the last chapter and the epilogue, uh, circulating Turkish literature and then uh, Dragoman's and the route of Orientalism, where you really put all the pieces together and uh, try to explain why these people who we've been talking about were so important for the circulation of Turkish letters, the development of the corpus of Turkish letters and therefore nascent um, orientalism could you sort of tell us something more about that and uh, really give us your 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 main argument now that we've reached uh, the (laughs) end
0: (laughs) so I think I don't know that the main argument is necessarily about the text that they put in circulation although that's one way of getting at the broader question of how the Dragomans relate to the early modern Republic of Letters and to the introduction of Ottoman literature and science into a broader sphere of circulation in in Europe. Um, I think what's, what's important for me is not to separate that question of what texts get translated from the broader questions of the history of the book in terms of who's the readership, how are these artifacts put together, who are the personnel involved, who's responsible for printing, for the typeface, for the illustrations, etc. And we now have some wonderful um, studies by by other scholars who look very closely at these questions in relation to uh, specific artifacts. I'm thinking here of Carter Findlay's recent book and others uh, who really allow us to, to delve uh, more deeply into these questions, I also, in the epilogue, look also at this question of what, how the patterns of reproduction, of kinship, of dragomans kind of transmutate into academic reproduction in the French academy in particular, um, and here I'm kind of taking a leap both chronologically and, and spatially to talk about the French case with which, admittedly, I'm less familiar, and it's all based on, on secondary literature rather than on my own archival research, but I think there is a case to be made for the ways in which uh, the study of Orientalism in French is very much indebted to the patterning of um, this this merger of scholarly bookish training with diplomatic um, immersion in Istanbul as a sine qua non of Ottomanist uh, credentials in the French Academy and that in many ways we see very clear patterns from teacher to student rather than father to son um, of bequeathing that kind of dual dual legacy of learning in, in the metropole in Paris and then being sent to another metropole, Istanbul, to have a career in diplomacy before returning to assume a position. In, in the French Academy as, as an Ottoman professor. But to go back to, to the question of, of these texts, one of the things that I found curious and noteworthy is the ways in which dragomans have such a strong preference for, for historical chronicles, and not just any historic, Ottoman historical chronicles, but chronicles written very much in the court by courtiers for courtly ideological purposes. So they often um, end up choosing texts to translate that really voice the perspective of the Ottoman elite, about the Ottoman project, about its history. About It's very much kind of history from above, celebrating the sultan or mildly critiquing sultanic or vizierial decisions, but very much from within that same milieu of, of Istanbulite courtly culture, which again gives European readers of these texts a very particular, very partial perspective on the production of literature in Ottoman society. There are entire genres and fields of knowledge, science, poetry, etc., that one would be really hard-pressed to find any representation of in this corpus of Ottoman literature in translation. I think there are many reasons for why dragomans are so selective in their translations. Partly it's their own, the limitations of their own knowledge of the Ottoman language. They are trained to read and speak Ottoman in very specific diplomatic context, so they're quite comfortable with the vocabulary of statecraft and history, perhaps not so fluent in the refined registers of poetry, where a much greater command of Persian is necessary to be a a successful um, poet or or translator of poetry uh, from Ottoman. So that's one, one explanation. But I think in many ways they also very much come to identify with how Ottoman history is understood at the center because they are part of that same milieu. These are the people that they socialize with. These are the people they go to parties with. These are the people that they interact with on a daily basis. And they very much absorb that... Um, in many ways um, myopic view of the Ottoman project as seen from the metropole and are not perhaps as attuned to other varieties of Ottoman writing, even history writing that is happening in other perhaps more provincial settings or even if we think about um, the massive production of literature and scholarship in places like Cairo or Aleppo. that is not that does not filter into the canon of Ottoman writing, and in many ways helps reproduce the divisions between Arabic um, and and Ottoman scholarship that are um, reproduced to this day in terms of not thinking about the Arab provinces as part and parcel of the Ottoman project in quite the same way, <coughs> excuse me, or thinking of them as somehow secondary. By the 17th and 18th century, something that you know people like Dana Sajdi has, has, has done a lot to question and critique, but are these linguistic choices and the limitations of what is available to dragomans end up reinforcing and reproducing those same kinds of divisions and hierarchies that are at the core of how Ottoman elites understand themselves as not Arab or not this or not that, if, if that makes sense.
1: Right. No, absolutely. And in in many ways, then, these uh, uh, it is a, it is these kinds of ideas um, that derive from a very specific elite milieu in Istanbul that are, um, as you show, broadcasted or refracted through the, these um, insider intermediaries, if you will, uh, into uh, the developing sort of um, canon of uh, of Turkish letters um, with influences that. Uh, um, last till this day um right yeah so thank you so much for uh taking us through uh your very fascinating um text i have a few f- final questions uh, that i wanted to ask you and the first one has to do um about the sources and in some way it is uh just a word of advice. How do you put together all of Mm -hmm. these very diverse sources into a coherent uh, text? And one strategy that you use, for example, is that each chapter tends to be centered around one type of source, but this is not Mm -hmm. like a sine qua non feature. Um, And then, though, I also wanted to perhaps uh, um, put forward uh, uh, a delicate line of criticism, which has to do with the centrality of the archival work done on the Venetian uh, dragomans, which is fantastic for me because I am essentially a Venetianist. Um, And the work done there is fascinating and very, very detailed. But then when we come to this, this refracting Ottoman letters into Europe, whatever that means more broadly, it does seem to be other dragomans, the French or the Habsburg, who play mm-hmm. a more important role, perhaps because you, you give many explanations why this might be. Uh, so I was wondering if you could say something to the representativity of this Venetian experiment experience mm-hmm. that you cover so thoroughly, too, in its relation to the other types of uh, of. Dragoman experience. Thank
0: you. Yeah, no, thank you. These are This is an, a really important question and an important critique. I would say in general about archives, this is a protracted problem for graduate students these days because the kinds of in-depth exploration of different genres and the promiscuity with which I was able to go to different kinds of archives and, and, and kind of take a deep dive to see what it yields is something that a lot of graduate students don't have the luxury of doing because of the pressures to finish dissertations and the limitations on funding to do archival research. This is a longer conversation that that perhaps needs to happen elsewhere, but I would say that um, the growing digitization of archives does open up new possibilities and that I think we need, we as as a discipline of history, need to do a better job of training students to leverage this digitization project without losing sight of the granular deep reading skills that are the hallmark of the discipline. I don't think it's sufficient to just say, well, you can query digital archives, um, digital collections and, and come up with results because the ability to contextualize these results and to understand how these genres operate in themselves and in relation to others crucially depends on these deep dives. But I would I would recommend for people starting projects to cast their nets broadly in terms of what is already available online to at least get a sense of an initial mapping of where they might find archival sighting of their protagonists. One of the curious things about these dramas and why I end up writing about Habsburg uh, segment of the Dragomanet, is precisely that they are the descendants of the Venetian Dragomans. These are not entirely separate people. These are the grandchildren of the protagonists of the earlier chapters, so there is a very clear kin relationship, and I would argue also a professional relationship, which takes me to, to your uh, critical question about why this shift from the Venetian to the Habsburg and French, In part, it is a historical shift that I'm tracing, and I came to realize fairly late in the project at a point where I wasn't ready to undertake a whole lot of more archival research in Vienna and Paris. I did um, um, explore these these collections to the best of my ability um, uh, remotely and through the help of colleagues who sent materials that they were able to find and building on an already robust body of secondary literature about about these cases. Um, But for me this question is precisely how we think about the importance of the Venetian Dragomanet when in fact they were very minor players in the production of printed materials to circulate in Europe. So um, most of the dictionaries and grammars that I mentioned earlier, most of these translations that appear in print and that are read widely about Ottoman history are by French and Habsburg dragomans are not by Venetian dragomans by and large. So again, the question in the book, I give various reasons why I think that is the case, but what I want to emphasize for the listeners today is that Venice provides a profound template for the training and recruitment of all dragomans. It's been neglected by the literature for many years where the focus was really on the French one because for for a variety of, of other reasons, and we know a whole lot about... The Habsburg the case, because of the um, establishment of the Orientalische Akademie, the Oriental Academy, which is a, a training school for diplomats uh, in the mid 18th century and that produces some of the early and most influential Orientalists um, like von um, Hammer and others. The Venetian case was not as well known because its protagonists did not produce these materials in print that circulated far and wide to the to the most part for the most part. Some did, but not as many. But the Venetians are the first ones to come up with a systematic method of training dragomans that pivots on immersion. The idea that you can't teach a language remotely in a classroom simply by memorizing conjugations. Um, This is a lesson that has since then been incorporated into second language acquisition across the board. You know, I live in Canada, my kids go to French immersion schools. We cannot think of French immersion without these earlier examples. There may not be a direct link connecting Istanbul with Quebec, but there is certainly an epistemological and a pedagogical link between these experiments. And it was the Venetians, more than the French and the Habsburg, and well before the French and the Habsburg that understood that you cannot take young children of 12 and put them in a classroom with a teacher to memorize Ottoman verbs and expect them to be effective Ottoman speakers, not just because it's mind-blowingly boring to do that, but because language is always socially situated and always depends on specific sites of interaction on an interactive genres. And the only way to learn these interactive genres is... Uh, through apprenticeship, through immersion, by being in a space where these languages are spoken naturally and organically in a variety of contexts. So that was the genius of the Venetian system. Um, And it is a system that ultimately comes to typify the trajectories of the French and Habsburg-trained Dragomans as well, because while they spend years conjugating verbs in Paris or in Vienna, before they can become Dragomans, they have to do their stint as apprentices in Istanbul and become comfortable in an Ottoman speaking environment. In in this sense, yes, I don't, I, I didn't do archival research about these two later, mostly early 18th century settings, but I think that there is a genealogical connection and a real organic uh, continuity in terms of the protagonists, both in terms of the kinship networks that bind them together quite literally from from one generation to the next, but also epistemologically and um, pedagogically in terms of what kinds of understandings of the Ottoman language and its acquisition come to frame the project of training dragomans across the board.
1: Right, and I have to say that as I was uh, writing, I did not write it, as I was reading your um, epilogue, um, I couldn't help to think about the fact that when I had to start learning uh, modern Turkish and Ottoman Turkish, I went to uh, immersive schools in uh, Istanbul or otherwhere in Turkey. There you uh, are. <laughs> so it definitely resonated uh, with me. Um, so thank you so much for, again, taking the time to go into such uh, detail about your new book. And I think uh, before I leave you, I would like to ask... One more question, which is, uh, simply put, what is up next for you? What are you working on? What's the next project?
0: So the, the next project, again, grows very much out of this one and is a collaborative project with uh, the digital scholarship unit at my university library and with a few fellow scholars um, of early modern Ottoman uh, diplomacy thinking about um, the production of trans-imperial archives between Ottoman and European chancery. So I will be looking primarily at the Ottoman-Venetian interface and my colleagues are looking at the Ottoman-Hubsburg uh, interface, as well as the circulation of Ottoman texts within the Ottoman Empire in a variety of, of contexts. And, and it is, I mentioned that it is a collaboration with the digital scholarship unit because we're very much interested in leveraging digital tools to think capaciously about how diplomatic archives emerge in a frame that is decidedly not the state, um, which may sound counterintuitive when we talk about diplomacy, but the point is precisely to situate these diplomatic archives, such as the archives of the Venetian Violet um, and, and other similar exemplars as emanating not simply from a Venetian reason of state or an Ottoman reason of state, but rather from the circulation um, and the specific regimes of circulation. Here I'm using a, f- a very useful phrase from uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Frank Cody. Uh, the patterning, the very regular patterning of how these uh, text and text artifacts circulate between chanceries. What are the procedures of translation and commensuration that allow the Venetians to construct a diplomatic archive in Istanbul that is very much beholden to Ottoman um, record-keeping practices and to Ottoman understandings of authenticity, authority, uh, legitimacy of a text artifact. Um, And so the project will aim to think about the translation practices within the corpus of the Turkish charters that I mentioned earlier, this massive corpus of bounded fascicles with facing copies of Ottoman, Ottoman uh, official record, and then their Italian Italian translations, but also more broadly about how the Venetians go about creating an archival um, creating an archive of their uh, diplomacy in Istanbul um, in ways that are not simply an extension to Istanbul of Venetian understandings of what is an archive, but rather depend on these circulation of text, of text artifacts, as well as practitioners. And the Dragomans, of course, are one kind of very influential practitioners in this context.
1: Well, that sounds fascinating. And I, for one, will be waiting to hear more about uh, this project in the future. And uh, with that, I would say thank you so much once again for uh, coming uh, today to the New Books Network and sharing uh, thoughts and uh, um examples from your new book with us, um, we really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners have appreciated it too. So thank you so much and take care.
0: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation.